Good morning. We have a very serious passage in front of us this morning. I'd love for you to open your Bibles in John chapter 1. If you're using an electronic device like so many people do, and you have a choice of translation, because the Bible was not written in English, it was written in three ancient languages, and we have several good translations in English, I'm using the English Standard Version, ESV. If you use the Bible Gateway app or something like that, if you don't have a Bible with you, please look around. There should be one near you in the chair directly beneath you or certainly nearby. So I have a longer reading from John's gospel. John was a commercial fisherman. He was literally called away from the nets and from family. Jesus invited John to follow him. And in the greatest decision that John ever made, he dropped the nets and started following after Jesus. And many years after the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, John wrote a gospel, which we're reading this morning, to tell us what he had seen and heard. And I say that we have a challenge ahead of us in the 21st century because there's several things that you'll feel they're fighting against you doing the serious thinking that this passage requires. They happen to me as well. In fact, uh, during the 9 a.m. service, something happened in the congregation. Someone sneezed and, and uh, kind of shook the walls in here, and everybody turned, and everybody laughed, and we had a moment. And that's the first thing that you have to fight against when you're doing anything that requires sustained, careful thought like this passage of the beginning of John's gospel. Scientists tell us our attention span is getting shorter and shorter. Do you feel it? Some of you aren't even aware that I'm talking at this moment, and you're kind of proof of concept. It is. One study says that everybody's been citing and people are arguing against it, but that's apparently a reasonably well-done study says that human beings have now shortened our attention span to shorter than a goldfish. Okay, that a goldfish can pay more sustained attention to one thing at one time than the average person. And I feel it, because I have a smartphone too, and that thing chirps and buzzes all day long, and it's getting harder and harder to pay attention. The second thing that we have going against us when we consider ancient claims to truth is what historians call chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is also being pushed by technology. It's a human bias, but technology has accelerated it. And you see it probably in the way you follow news. Even very legitimate global news sources now stack the stories on your computer or on your phone according to what is trending. In other words, things that are happening at this moment that everybody's talking about. And I don't know if you've noticed what was trending three days ago, nobody can even remember anymore, right? And that's just one instance of chronological snobbery, which says this, if it happened a long time ago, it doesn't particularly matter. If we're talking about the ancient world, it almost certainly doesn't matter. In fact, it may not even be true because it happened like in the 90s. I mean, who knows, even if, if, that, if that's even true. I wasn't there, someone will say. Well, when you're stepping back into Bible times, you're reading the first-hand account of a commercial fisherman who followed Jesus who wrote some 2,000 years ago. 
And as you listen to his claims, because they're so extraordinary, between the increasingly hard task of paying attention and the built-in bias against things that happened a long time ago, it'll be really tempting to check out. The third thing probably is actually the biggest challenge. For a long time, there's been a philosophical undercurrent that's been shaping the Western side of the world, and the United States in particular, that makes this primary claim that has shaped our way of thinking, and that is this. Only science can give you facts. Everything else is a matter of values or preferences or feelings. If we can bring it into a lab, if we can subject it to empirical observation, if it can be tested and retested and demonstrated in the physical world, that's a fact. Everything else is up, to gra up for grabs and primarily up to you. It's whatever works for you. The way that looks on the street and in your office and in this classroom is this. You'll start talking to people or mention the idea of God or the idea of His Son, Jesus, and someone will quickly say, listen, I'm really glad that works for you, not really my thing. And Jesus kind of gets pushed into the category of pistachio ice cream, which is, you know, if you like it, good for you, but please don't, don't bother me. And with that, I, I just don't have any interest in pistachio ice cream. It's just a personal preference or a value. John, who was a real human being who lived a long time ago, but knew exactly what human beings were expected to act and look like, who knew what life and death was, literally gave his life away to Jesus. And even after Jesus was killed, once John knew that he had come back from the dead, he didn't abandon the cause. He, along with those who were closest to Jesus and were in the best position to know whether Jesus was real and true and faithful, they all gave their lives away day by day, and with the exception of John, they all died, if history is to be believed, brutal deaths, rather than take the story back, rather than say that they made it up, or even say that perhaps they were mistaken. That's why John's gospel is so important. It's as transparent as a sunny day. He says at the end of his gospel that Jesus did many things that John didn't take the time to write down for us. But he said, but I've written the things that I did so that you may believe in Jesus and believing in him have life. In other words, he is claiming and intending to tell you the truth about reality, the truth about life, and above all, the truth about Jesus, and he wants you to believe it because John has come to be convinced by personal experience with Jesus that life and death are on the line. And John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, sets up his whole gospel. For those of you who are interested in those kinds of details, Bible scholars call this the prologue. In other words, this is the word before all the others. In it, John is going to introduce all of his themes. He's going to tell you from the very first sentence exactly who Jesus is. And from the time I read the first sentence you're going to be challenged intellectually. I am. I was this week as I read this familiar verse. He's going to take you into the realm of the supernatural, of things that cannot be observed by science, and that's where that third bias kicks in that says, well, if I can't see it, it must not be true. 
Just hang in there and listen to the fisherman tell you about the Jesus he knew. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the first verse in John's prologue, the first strophe or chorus, if you like. Now he's going to change the scene from heaven and bring you back down to earth, and he's going to mention a man named John. This is not the writer. This is John the Baptist, who was a relative of Jesus, most likely his cousin, who was a few months older than Jesus. And John's going to remind of his readers of his ministry, of his preaching. If you're a football fan, you can think of John the Baptist as the lead blocker for Jesus. He's not the point. He doesn't have the ball. He doesn't carry the message, but he's preparing the way. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now John's going to reflect on the life of Jesus, his rejection and his death. He sums it up like this. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Here's Christmas. Here's the birth of Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, remember, John is older, started speaking in public first, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John gives you, John the gospel writer gives you his witness. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What's the point? What's John want you to know? Because make no mistake, the concepts are heavy. In fact, this is the loftiest sort of thing you can find in all the Scriptures because John is taking you back to before creation even existed. He's taking you into the presence of God. In the first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't tell you who specifically he's talking about until verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
But this word who was simply there in the beginning, who was with God and who was God himself, John says, is the man we all called whose parents gave him the name Jesus. First fact of Christmas, Jesus has always been and will always be God. That's the first thing that John wants you to know. He starts you with a fastball, if you will. He starts with the first fact. He starts with the originator, with the very beginning of everything that John has experienced in his life, the fish, the nets, his family, food, everything that John has enjoyed says there was a time when it did not exist because in the beginning there was simply the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he pulls you into it slowly. In the beginning, he doesn't tell you specifically who he's talking about. And I'll tell you why. If you look at your English Bible, the Word is capitalized. Do you see that? In the beginning was the Word, capital W. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why did they capitalize it? Because they correctly understood that John is speaking of a person and giving him a title. And remember, he's not writing in English. He's using a Greek word, logos. Okay, you lost me already. Hang in. Why? Well, because John was writing at a specific time. He was writing to a specific group of people. As I've had a discussion recently with someone, this was written for us, but it wasn't written originally to us. We're quite literally reading somebody else's mail. And this word in Greek in John's culture would have arrested attention of everybody he's trying to reach in his own day. Two kinds of people in John's world and very sharply divided, those groups exist today, but it was one of the defining things of living in John's ancient world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. There were Jews and people who had been Hellenized, who had been assimilated and formed in Greek culture. And when John said, in the beginning was the Word, he's using that single Greek word, logos, to speak to both Jews and Gentiles in different ways. For the Jews, he wanted them to take, he wanted to take them back to the very first words in their scriptures. You know them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is John 1, 1. Genesis 1, verse 1 says, would you read it with me? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is starting his gospel the way the Hebrews started their scriptures. He's trying to awaken their understanding, and he goes on to say in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's trying to get the Jews to make connections, that the one that they actually knew, the one who was so scandalous and so controversial, who was subjected eventually to that mockery of a trial and killed under the orders of Pontius Pilate, it was more than they realized. He was greater than they knew because He was the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, who was in the beginning with God, and who made everything that existed. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, also from the Hebrew Scriptures, by the Word of the Lord the heavens were made 
And John is trying with his simple writing, with the choice of that single word, trying to spark understanding and remembrance and connections for people like him who are Jewish. This word, word, this logos has fascinated Bible students for years. I almost brought down the stack of books I have in my modest library that discuss this concept alone. There's so much there. And the simplest understanding is this. Why do we use words? Think about it. I'm using them now. You'll use them at home. Hopefully not too many now, right? But why do we, why do we speak? Why do we use words? To communicate, to make ourselves understood. That's a beginning point of why John calls Jesus the Word. He is the expression. He is the action. He is the visible communication of God. When God acted by sending His Son into the world, He did it for one primary reason. He wanted to be understood. He wanted to be known. That's why verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God, some of your translations will say the only Son, because of differences in Greek manuscripts, both would be true, but I think this is a better choice. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. John is making an incredible claim about Jesus, that God has spoken and acted and actually become flesh in human history so that if you want to know who God is, all you have to do is get to know Jesus. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's for the Jews. Now, how are the Greeks taking all this? Well, the big question for the Jews was this, and you can see it all through the Gospels. Their question, their objection was this, you mean to tell me that this man… Yeshua, whose mother is Mary, whose brothers we know, who grew up in Nazareth, the carpenter's kid? He's God? Come on. And you read through the Gospels and you see them having that exact struggle. In fact, Mark's Gospel says, and you can understand their point of view, Mark's gospel says that Jesus' family one day went to take custody of him because they thought he was out of his mind. And you take that in just an ordinary family, these are the growingly, the increasingly worried conversations that siblings are having because they think that Big Brother has gone crazy. The Jews never really, many of them, could not get over this claim. That's why John starts them this way. He's going to make the most astonishing and important claim first. If you keep reading John's gospel, there's another plot to kill Jesus, and Jesus asks them, why are you going to kill me? For what good work are you trying to kill me now? And they say, we're not going to kill you for any of the good works you've done. We're going to kill you for this reason. You're a man, and you make yourself out to be God. And Jesus never says there's been a misunderstanding. He affirms who John knew and who Jesus knew that he was from the very beginning. Now, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the people soaked in Greek culture, they have a different problem. The word logos to them meant the mind or the reason of God. And their question, their objection was this, you mean to tell me that the mind and wisdom of God is actually a man? 
The Jews said, there's no way that this man can be God. The Greeks who thought that the wisdom of God was completely separated from earthly existence could have nothing to do with human flesh. They said, we can't begin to fathom that the mind and the wisdom of God who made all this can actually be reduced to human flesh. What am I trying to tell you? Jesus challenges everybody then and now. This is one of the reasons with the short attention span and this mistaken belief that there can be no truth claims unless science can prove them, and this idea that things that happened long ago aren't that important. We have a lot to overcome if we're actually honestly going to deal with the person that is Jesus. But John makes this claim right from the start. Jesus has always been and will always be God. And you say, well, I I just can't get my mind around a God who was always there. Because that's the claim. Look at it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Where did Jesus come from? He didn't come from anywhere. He simply existed. God is simply there, and you say, I don't get it, and I will say to you, I don't either. And one of the primary objections, in, especially in our days, is that the idea of an eternal God, of a God who simply is, doesn't make sense to our minds. Now, I'd like to show you from a recent article in the Washington Post that the atheist These men, I don't know if they're atheists or not, but the scientist, the man of science who says simply that all he believes in is creation itself, is matter, he has a similar problem. The good news, as usual, comes from UCLA. February 26, February 26, 2015, this is from the Washington Post, this amazing headline, scientists may have solved mystery of matter's origin. Did you get that? Scientists from UCLA have said, we figured it out, we know where everything came from. Are you interested? Now listen, I'm not a person of science, calculus was as far as I could go. There are people here with physics degrees, and I have the highest admiration for them. I am not one of them. God made my brain in a way that that whole side of the brain barely functions, okay? (laughs) But I can read a news article, and in reading the article, I find a gap. I find faith that they have placed in something that is not God. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to abbreviate it because it is pretty complicated. And I made the terrible mistake of reading the whole thing last night at the Saturday service, and that didn't work too well. So let me just give you the highlights from the Washington Post. For decades, scientists have puzzled over one of the central, most essential mysteries of physics. Where did all the stuff that makes up the universe come from? Skipping down. The gist of their theory is simple, even poetic. The conditions of the early universe were biased towards creating something out of nothing. Here's the explanation. Hang in there. Roughly one decillionth of a second after the Big Bang, in this period, termed inflation, listen, particles, the most basic ingredient of everything in the universe, and antiparticles, the opposite of all that, 
coexisted in a rapidly expanding hot soup. The two could switch identities. In other words, antiparticles could turn into particles and vice versa. But the laws of physics applied equally to both, meaning they were created in perfect proportion. Shortly after inflation, the universe's growth slowed, and the two kinds of particles, which are perfectly opposed in mass and charge and effectively cancel each other out, began colliding and annihilating one another. The battle would have swiftly ended in the elimination of all forms of particles, a kind of cosmic mutually assured destruction, if not for one tiny unexplained asymmetry in the size of their forces. For every 10 billion antiparticles, there were 10 billion particles plus one. That marginal imbalance meant that matter was the last man standing, leading to the creation of the elements, stars, solar systems, planet Earth, and every person on it. One of the scientists explains, this is, this is appealing because it doesn't require too many ingredients, he said in a phone interview with the Washington Post. Did you pick up where they need faith? He said... Even a layman can understand that. This theory is appealing because it doesn't require too many ingredients. What are the ingredients? Particles. And apparently, antiparticles. Do you see the obvious question? Where do the particles come from? They've explained nothing. They've perhaps dialed back the clock to the moment of creation itself, but you still have the simple existence of particles that, and they kept saying it, created everything else. In other words, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. More concisely, Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The latest science from the best minds on earth apparently says, in the beginning, particles. Yes, it requires faith. God always leaves a gap for faith because it's a personal relationship. Personal relationships cannot exist without faith. The only reason you have any relationship in your life is because in a moment, based on evidence that that person is loving and good and has your best interest at heart, you give them your trust. And when two people give each other trust, friendship is born, love is born, families are made. It is the same with the one who was simply there. Jesus was God from the very beginning. He always has been. He always will be. But make no mistake, that is a challenge and that is a mind-bending test to everybody which requires and has to be answered with trust, with faith. Second fact from John's prologue. John says the most astonishing thing, and this is the Christmas story, at the perfect time, Jesus, who was there in the beginning, who simply always was, who made everything else, it wasn't actually particles, it was Jesus Himself originating all of creation, that same Jesus, John says, became a man. Look now down to verse 14. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That eternal, uncreated Word that makes everything else, the God who is simply there at a specific time in history, John says, in my lifetime, before my amazed eyes, that Word became flesh. 
And the Creator did the most astonishing, loving, humbling thing He could have done. He condescended, He humbled Himself to become part of the creation. And it was so humble that John says He dwelt among us, and that takes us back into John's chosen language for writing Greek. What it literally means is He tabernacled with us. In other words, there was a time which the Word became flesh, and it was like He set up His tent among us. He was briefly among us, and in His first letter, in 1 John, don't look, but in the first verses of that letter, He says, we're telling you what we have seen, what we have heard, and what our hands have touched concerning the Word of life. In other words, chronological snobbery and short attention span besides and with all the objections of things that have to be dragged into the lab before the modern mind will concede that they're a fact, John is telling you from the point of view of not a religious man and not a mystic, from the point of view of a commercial fisherman from the humble land of Galilee, I was there, I saw him. I saw him day after day. I heard what he said in the many places where he preached, and in the synagogues and in the hillsides, I heard him speaking, and I actually touched him. And eventually, John would tell you, and he will tell you in his gospel, I saw him die. Because the Word truly became flesh, and everything that could happen to a human being, every kind of suffering, every kind of temptation, every human frailty and limitation that is characteristic of any human being, Jesus subjected Himself to it when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He really was a human being, but He was more than a human being because, John says, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that again, as it says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, He has made Him known. Greek scholar C.K. Barrett says this about this verse. John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this is not true, the book is blasphemous. You want to know who God is? You can. He's come close. He's actually clothed himself by a loving choice with human flesh, and he can be tempted like you were, but without sin. He can suffer like you suffer. He can actually suffer so much that He can actually die so that one of Jesus' last loving acts from the cross was to turn to this same disciple in say in language and idioms characteristic to their culture, John, this is my mother, take care of her. Why? Because Jesus is dying. And the Word who briefly set up His tent among creation, He's actually dying in the world that He made. And the very people that he made are actually turning their back on him. And the entire machinery of the government and the thoughts of man that existed in the ancient world are turning against the Creator, not only to reject him, as John so briefly says, but to reject him in this way, to kill him. And that was for this reason. Because Jesus subjected himself to all of that and the miracle of Christmas is He puts Himself in my condition, the condition of a normal human being, to experience 
everything that makes me sin and that makes me frail and that separates me from God, and he did it all for my sake so that he could trade lives with me and trade lives with you so that you could be saved. See, in this culture we find ourselves now, when it People start talking about religion or spirituality. Here's the analogy that is often given. They say, and I've actually had people say this to me, listen, man, Bruce, God is up on a mountain very high, separated from the rest of us. And all religions are are different paths that climb the mountain. Some take longer than others and are harder than others and have more twists and turns along the way. You can't even see them all because some are on the other side of the mountain. But what really matters is to choose a path and to start climbing. We'll all get to the top in our own time and in our own way. You ever heard anything like that? Here's what the Bible says. Yes, God is high and lifted up. He really is the creator. He's way above everything that he made. But through the miracle, the gift of the birth of his son, he doesn't invite you to climb up the mountain. God actually came down and met you on your level. And that's the point of this final fact of the prologue. Look at John 1 verse 12 now. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, here's the most astonishing promise. He gave the right to become children of God. John says, and as I witness what I mainly saw that Jesus received for his trouble and his love and in sacrifice was rejection. There was a time when everything in the world turned against Jesus and everyone consented to his death. And the people who should have known him first, who heard the law of Moses, who showed them that God was high and lifted up and separate, and Jesus, on the other hand, brought grace and truth, the first people who should have recognized him didn't. And if you read the gospel story, Jesus goes home to preach in his home synagogue in Nazareth, and first they admire his teaching, and then in that very same day, they try to kill him try to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth that is present to this day. Why did that happen? Because light was clashing with darkness, and life was coming to do war with death. And darkness in men's hearts is going to reject light, and death is going to attack life. But as John has already told you, death and darkness are not going to win. God is going to use the death of His own Son to make everybody the most amazing offer that can be extended to anyone. Entry into God's family so that as it says at the end of verse 12, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's the offer. That you don't have to wonder about God. You don't have to hope that you know who He is. That you don't have to hope that it doesn't really matter. No, it matters. It matters so much that God has done the most astonishing thing in human history. He has sent His Son who, though God Himself became a human being so that we would know exactly who God is, so that the Son and the God who was at the Father's side could come among us and show us and tell us through words and deeds and actions in a visible body exactly who God is and what He wants, And make this offer, if anyone will only trust Him, you'll become a daughter, you'll become a son of God yourself. You'll be welcomed into God's family. Nothing matters more than that. Nothing. 
See, because of all these challenges, what most Americans have been crowded into in the 27 into 2017 is that hoping that the things that matter most in life, where you will be and what will happen to you one moment after your death, they cram all of that into a box called I don't know and I hope. And it's a miserable way to live and an even more miserable way to face your own death. And here in closing is one of the things that I think churches sometimes unwittingly do to hurt people and to disappoint them at this Christmas season. It is so joyous, it is so worth celebrating that we pretend like there's not pain and death and shadows in this world. Let me speak to you about Jesus at Christmas time in light of this prologue, in light of this passage. For some of you, this Christmas is harder than the others. You've lost people. There's an empty chair at the table. The family has been fractured. Relations are distant and cold, and you're hoping that they'll warm up at Christmas time. And it's just hard. And you come into a gathering, and everybody's pretending that everything's okay. And sometimes churches give you this unintended, painful message you should just be happy. And you're thinking to yourself, You don't know what I've lost. You don't know what I miss. You don't know why with the joy that I find this is hard for me. Listen, that's the very world that Jesus came into. He came to die for that darkness. He came as the life and the light of the world who gave men life and who gave His light to all people. He came to trample that disappointment, that hurt, that pain, and ultimately that death underfoot so that death and pain and sorrow and disappointment would not have the last word, so that you could now and eventually perfectly be a child of God. So that when you open that Scripture with all of the distractions that come fight against you, you're actually hearing from your Heavenly Father. You're not studying an abstract text. You're not reading somebody's musings from long ago. You're actually hearing the very Word of God spoken to you and for you. When you pray, you're not just mouthing words in some hopeful, mystical exercise that someone out there somewhere is listening and something might happen. You're actually speaking to the one who gave his son so that he could call you his child. That's love. That's Christmas. That's why Jesus came. That's why John, just a few verses later in John 1.29, said these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, John steeped in Judaism, having heard the Word of God speaking to people who had heard the Hebrew Scriptures all their lives in synagogue, who were familiar with the sacrifice of a lamb every year. One day, John stopped in mid-sentence and said, look, Your father used to bring a lamb over. This is the lamb of God. He's the one who takes away the sin of the whole world. And you're part of that world. It was for you. It was for your sake. It was love to bring you into the family of God. So there's two kinds of people in this room. There are people who already have that assurance who can go to Jesus with thanks and joy and gratitude, and maybe for you this year is pure happiness, and I hope so. But if it's not, 
You can go to Jesus with your pain, your trouble, your suffering, your tears, and know that from his experience as a human being who created all the other human beings, he perfectly understands you and he perfectly loves you. And if you're one who's been on the fence about Jesus, you've been skeptical, you've not been sure, you've been resistant, maybe this is the moment where you hear him call and you surrender. It will take trust. All personal relationships do. That's why the invitation is made to you, to those who did believe He gave the right to become children of God. Let's pray. Could I speak to the second group first? If you're not sure about Jesus, if you've been cramming all of spirituality into a hope-so box, into a not-sure kind of category… I hope it'll be okay. I hope I can figure that out later. Can I invite you in the name of Jesus to believe the gospel right now? The gospel just means good news. That's what I've been giving you. I'm not a salesman. I'm a reporter. Just like John gave you his witness, I'm giving you mine now. The question is who's going to be in charge of your life? Because Jesus... The, who actually is God, came to die for the rest of us who behave like little gods, who act like we're in charge. If you'll humble yourself, you'll do the hardest thing in the world. In fact, it's a miracle. It's so hard, it's a miracle. If you'll humble yourself and say, yes, Jesus, I believe you. I am sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for making myself the boss and the God of my own life. I believe you. Please forgive my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. He will. He does all over the world, sometimes in church services, sometimes in private conversations. People hear the truth about Jesus. They humbly trust Him, not the messenger. The messenger barely matters. It's the message. It's the person of Jesus that I'm inviting you to trust. It's Him, not me. I'm just a reporter. I'm inviting you specifically to trust Jesus. And if you do, just call out to him in prayer and say, Jesus, I have rejected you before. I trust you and I believe you now. Please bring me into the family of God. I'm sorry for my sin. Take it away from me. Save me. Take charge of me. And he will. And if you do that, all I ask is that you take the connection card in your bulletin and let us know. You'll belong to a family, the family of God, and those of us who've been walking with God a little longer, we want to celebrate with you. We want to teach you how to take those first steps and begin the greatest adventure and the greatest joy that anyone can ever have. And maybe, and this will perhaps be the majority of the people here, you already know the Lord. But it is hard. There are pressures. There is sadness. There is disappointment. Jesus died for all that. He died to make all of that right someday, and He loves you perfectly right now. Could you turn to Him and just pour it all out, tell Him all about it? Lord Jesus, as we turn to You now, I pray for those who are, who are struggling. I pray that You would move them over to humility and repentance and belief, that You would give them the miracle of trusting You, and being welcomed into your family by the birth of your son, by the birth and death of your son. 
Lord, for the many Christians here who are just trudging through this season and trying to find what joy they can, fill their heart with peace, carry their burdens. Remind them, Lord, that if with their struggle, their loss, their tears, your love was so great that you died for them so that they and their loved ones could have eternal life and joy forever. We give you this offering, Lord, not as an effort of repayment, but in simple, joyful obedience. Thank you for making this a generous church family. Take these financial offerings, and may they support and undergird messengers all through our town and all around the world that will tell people where hope and life can be found. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.